Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to ModPath Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology, featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to a new episode of ModPath Chat. Joining us today is Dr. Philip Ip. Philip is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Pathology at Li Keqiang Faculty of Medicine at the University of Hong Kong. Philip is an internationally recognized expert in gynecologic pathology. He's made a lot of contributions in terms of publication. Uh, most importantly, he's been uh, a significant part of the last two editions, the fifth and fourth editions of the WHO classification of uh, female genital tumor. He is here today to discuss his recent publications in modern pathology, and the study is really uh, probably putting the final nails uh, in the coffin of uh, an entity, uh, the so-called uh, serous carcinoma of uterine cervix. So thank you, Philip, for accepting our invitation. Thank you, George. It's an honor to be invited to speak on the Modern Pathology podcast. Excellent. And uh, sorry we had to wake you up so early uh, in Hong Kong, but uh, I see the beautiful background, which our audience uh, don't get to see. So hopefully uh, one day soon uh, we can uh, uh, meet in person again. So let's start as we usually start uh, by uh, maybe you can tell us uh, what was the rationale or what led you uh, to do this uh, excellent study. Yes, um, following the publication of the seminal paper by Dr. Stonisu 
on the International Endosophical Adenocarcinoma Criteria and Classification Project, it was noted that the serious carcinoma of the cervix is rare. This gave us some inspiration or initiative to review our local cases to see whether we observe the same phenomenon. So my collaborator and the first author of this paper, Dr. Richard Wong, mm-hmm. and I review 136 endocervical adenocarcinoma in the two of our institutions. And we found among these 136 cases, there were 14 cases that were considered to have a serious-like morphology. In these 14 cases, two of them were diagnosed as serious carcinoma, but the rest of the tumors include a mixture of adenocarcinoma, NOS, usual type mucinous, mycopapillary, or adenosquamous carcinoma. So you can see it's a variety of diagnosis with the same morphology. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the frequency of our serious carcinoma diagnosis, two out of 136 cases is about 1.4%, which is very similar to the IECC project the, and the subsequent validation project by Dr. Paraharan. So the, both of these studies had less than 1% or just close to 1% of serious carcinoma. But nevertheless, the, we were quite alarmed by findings 14 cases, that's 10% of cases, which shows serious carcinoma features. So all the credit goes to um, Dr. Wong, and he put all these 14 cases together. He analyzed them in detail, and particularly using the IECC classific- classification recommendations. I so see. we studied these cases and divide them into papillary and mycopapillary patterns. I see. So uh, maybe that's uh, that's a good segue into into the design. So how how did you come about? I mean, it sounds like uh, definitive diagnosis of serious at that time was very very rare. But hedging, like a lot of uh, us do that in pathology, included expanded it to tenfold. Uh, so so how did you approach uh, you know getting to the truth here? What was the design of your study and what kind of techniques you use? Well, there's no easy way of going it. And we had to sit down and look at over 300, almost 400, 140 cases. And then we we, look, we searched for terms that were diagnosed as serous carcinoma, micropapillary carcinoma, and adenosquamous carcinoma. And then we looked for individual cases and slides which shows features of serous or micropapillary component greater than 5% in these cases. And then we applied the IUCC criteria using a panel of immunostains that they recommended and added the HPV testing. So the results we, we have after the analysis, we have found that there were 10 HPV-associated cancers, four of them being mycopapillary. And for the other four cases, they were HPV-independent cases, all were gastric-type carcinomas, three of them being mycopapillary. So we, we, we are, we were using the IECC criteria, we were able to make a diagnosis other than serious carcinoma. In all 14 patients, in, in all the whole 14, 14 cases, cases. That, that was brought up initially. So, so let, let me just be clear. So out of the 14, 
10, you ended up classifying as HPV-associated yes. carcinoma, including the usual, what you call the usual type, endocervical uh, adenocarcinoma and two adenosquame, right? And, That's right. And, and then the other four are the gastric type. So, so teach me. I, uh, I, I, I was never a fan of GYM pathology, but uh, gastric type endocervical, to explain to me. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, if, if we use the IECC criteria first, we can separate out the HPV-associated cancer, which are usually possess a very defined feature that the IECC recognize is the presence of many apical mitosis and apoptosis, which can be seen under scanning magnification. So these features is not usually seen in gastric type carcinoma. These gastric type carcinomas been long defined um, morphologically. They look um, to have more clear or granular eosinophilic cytoplasm, mm -hmm. and the NC ratio are much lower than your usual type HPV associated cancers and the nuclei more basally located. So these are the original descriptions of a gastric type carcinoma. They tend to express gastric type mucin and gastric type markers, and they tend to be more clinical, clinically aggressive and not responding to the conventional treatment that you use for other uh, GYN cancers. I see. And uh, so I know I know what this is uh, heading because uh, the HPV associated, uh, and I know you did PDL, and you know you did PDL analysis, and it sounds like uh, forty percent of the HPV associated. Not surprisingly, because uh, one imagine the antigenicity uh, had PDL. So so is that that's a correct uh, conclusion that I'm making from reading your paper. Yes, yes, we found the PDL1 expressions are only, although our sample size was small, but all of the gastric type carcinoma did not express any PDL1. So the expression is confined to HPV associated tumors. I see. And the HPV was done by, uh, you know, I guess you use a surrogate marker of P16, so you use the usual block positivity to, to indicate that. To, to, yes. to do that divide between HPV associated and not? Is that, is that how? Yes. Well, this, P16 was part of our immunostains that we used for this study, and all the cases were diffuse block staining with P16. And we also analyzed the HPV genotypes by um, PCR and sequencing, and we found that there were four cases that were. Um, HPV-16 genotypes and another five were HPV-18. So that was the distribution. And uh, as far as other, I know you did uh, targeted next generation sequencing on a subset. Uh, you want to share with our audience uh, and the two group, the HPV uh, associated and independent, uh, any, any specific findings? Yeah, um, well, we only had two cases we had, which had enough material to perform the um, uh, molecular studies. But uh, in our cases that we found in, in uh, one HPV-associated cancer, we found an ATM mutation, which is a pathogenic mutation, 
And we also found mesense variants in T53 and SMARC B1 in the gastric cancers. I think it's too, maybe our data is not sufficient to make any uh, judgment as to the role play in the pathogenesis of these tumors. I see. Excellent. So maybe maybe this is for future studies. You know the the trend for PDL expression and the HPV associated and and the ATM. If other HRD genes pan out, uh, potentially these could be of therapeutic importance. Now, uh, so what would you say the take home message be- beside the fact that if you see papillary or micropapillary. Uh, forget about serious these uh, you're going to try to put them back uh, into the hpv associated and independent gastric type and and what have you as you discussed so beside that important which would not to minimize the importance of that what how would you uh, what would you say the implications of this study and going forward what what kind of algorithm should we we follow when when this question comes up about serious endocervical well, first of all, um, if we are having a biopsy, a small biopsy, which looks like serous carcinoma, I think the most important thing is to look at the age of the patient. I think this is very important to recognize that this so-called serous-like carcinoma of the cervix will have a bimodal age distribution. And it goes back to the one of the very first study, which was which was conducted by my mentor, Dr. Philip Clement, in the 1990s. Both Dr. Clement and Dr. Blake Gilles and his colleagues from Vancouver, they collected the original series of cases of serious carcinoma of the cervix based on the morpholo- morphological features that are similar to other serious carcinoma of other parts of the genital tract. I believe in that series, they, they showed the cases to Dr. Robert Scully at the time, who said these, were, these cases were serious. So by morphology... So basically he, you had a couple of gods saying these are serious, and, uh, and look at you. Uh, is that what uh, Dr. Clemens get after he taught you all this? You're debunking the whole, <laughs> the whole discovery. My God, my fellows do that to me, but uh, it doesn't feel good. Good for you, man. No, but the, we, we have to understand that we are living in an evolving time and with our increased knowledge in the understanding the pathogenesis of disease. And we are looking at the same tumors from a different point of view. And it doesn't mean what was said before was untrue. But I think by all means, the, these earlier studies were important because they show us two things. Firstly, these cases, so-called serious carcinoma of the cervix, has a bimodal age distribution. And the second thing is because that these so-called serious morphology are often mixed, which is like similar to what we have found in our case studies here. Mm-hmm. But when we when we get a tumor that looks like serious, and the first thing we look at is look at the age. If the patient is in the right age group, which is younger, around 40, and then we think this could be more likely to be HPV-associated. Of course, in the other end of the age spectrum, the first thing we must do is to exclude the metastasis from the other parts of the gynae tract, which may have a tumor that has the same morphology as a serous carcinoma in the cervix. And then we apply the RECC recommendations is to look at the morphology 
look for the apical mitosis and apoptosis. And then usually we're able to make a pretty confident um, um, not diagnosis of HPV-type cancers. And to validate that, we usually do a P16, P53, and um, an ER in, and in order to confirm the diagnosis. And, and how, how would that, how, for, for those of us who don't do GYN, so you do the P16, I guess, is going to be blood positive, but how about the P53 and ER? In, in HPV-associated cancer, almost all HPV-associated ca- cancer are P16, which shows a diffuse block staining. And the difficulty with um, assessment of P16 sometimes could be misleading. The, the staining could be very strong and diffuse, but if you look carefully, it does look have a mosaic pattern. And when you see these this gradients within the staining, that sometimes maybe is misinterpreted as diffuse block. But when diffuse block staining, um, it has to be every single cell has to be strong. And because the P53? How the about- P53 usually is a wild type staining in mm-hmm. HPV associated cancers. So and which is are. different to which is different to endometrial serous carcinoma, which is usually aberrant staining. I see, and and the ER, you mentioned the ER, ER, right? The ER normally will be positive for um, um, endometrial the- cancers, but are usually negative for for endocervical carcinomas. So these are that's a rationale for doing three. So you would like it to be uh, P16 positive and block, like you said, diffuse, P53 wild type, and ER negative to, to categorize it as HPV associated. Yes. And also, if we look at the age, if the patient is in the um, higher age group, we may usually add WT1 to make sure we're not missing the metastasis from the upper tract. And... Of course, if, if we have any suspicions, if on morphology it doesn't look like a HPV-associated cancer, we might recruit other markers to exclude a gastric-type carcinoma. And we, we in, this, in this location that we have, we do not have the luxury to have the HIK-1083, which um, the marker is not widely available in many parts of the world. But sometimes we would um, add CK7 and CK20. This will show a gastrointestinal phenotype. So that may be useful in those circumstances. Excellent. Sounds like uh, a relatively practical, a uh, few immunohistochemical stains and, and good, good eyes, good morphology, and, and you can classify. And the key would be not to call them serous. And incidentally, I, I noticed that you did, all these cases did not have a serous clearly, and they were investigated in the upper track. Uh, they didn't have any serous, so to, to exclude a secondary involvement. So that, that's, that's also right. an important message, right? Excellent. Well, thank you. I, uh, I I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure uh, the audience did. Uh, and again, I uh, I can't thank you enough for waking up so early. I don't know that I will do that well uh, five o'clock in the morning uh, my time, but uh, it's been a pleasure and enjoyable. And uh, hopefully, uh, the next podcast things uh, will be better uh, for uh, for all of us. And uh, this is, as you know. 
uh, we're approaching uh, the uh, year end and uh, hopefully 2021 will be a, a great year for all of us. I believe uh, this podcast probably will not uh, air till uh, till January so uh, you could very well be our uh, our uh, uh, first uh, guest of, of the year 2021. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share my experience. And it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of Modern Pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible.